23, manner in which it is offered, had much to do with its acceptance, or rejection by the patient, let the nourishment be presented in a nice, clean dish, of a size and shape appropriate to the quantity, more food than can be eaten by the patient should not be placed before him at one time, since a great quantity excites disgust and loathing, in taking nourishment, drink, or medicine, the patient, if feeble, should not be obliged to change his position, Milk is one of the most important foods in fevers and acute diseases attended with great prostration, and in which the digestive powers are enfeebled. It contains within itself all the elements of nutrition. Beef tea furnishes an excellent nourishment for the sick, but there are few, even among professional nurses who know how to properly prepare it. We give three good recipes. One method is to chip up lean beef. Put it in a porcelain or tin saucepan. Cover it with cold water and bring it up to just below the boiling point, at which temperature retain it for 10 minutes, then season and serve, another method is similar to the foregoing, with this difference, that the juices of the meat are squeezed through a piece of muslin or crash, making the tea richer, another way, which we consider preferable to either of the above, is to take lean beef, cut it into fine bits, put them in a tightly covered vessel, which is placed in a kettle of water kept boiling, Thus the whole strength of the juice will be obtained from the meat without losing any of its properties. It can be seasoned to the taste, and reduced with water to suit the needs of the patient. Sleep is nature's grand restorer. A bomb to all mankind, the best comforter of that sad heart whom fortune's spite assails. It is necessary in health, and deadly so in sickness. During sleep, the vital energies recuperate. The forces are less rapidly expended, and the strength increases. It is the great source of rest and refreshment. Often a day's rest in bed, free from the cares and anxieties of an active life, is sufficient to ward off the approach of disease. If quiet and rest are essential to a recuperation in health, their necessity in disease must be apparent. Life frequently depends on tranquility and repose, and the least noise or confusion disturbs the sufferer and diminishes the chances of recovery. Nothing annoys sick or nervous persons more than whispering and the rustling of newspapers. If conversation be necessary, let the tones be modified, but never whisper, in sickness, when the vital forces are low, the more natural rest and sleep the patient obtains, the greater is the prospect for recovery, as a rule, a patient should never be awakened when sleeping quietly, not even to take medicine, unless in extreme cases, if the patient does not sleep, the cause should be ascertained and the appropriate remedies employed, if it arise from rush of blood to the head. Cooling lotions should be applied, and warmth to the feet, if, from restlessness or general irritability, a sponge bath, followed by friction should be administered, if the wakefulness is due to noise or confusion. Quiet is the remedy. When these means fail, anodynes, or nervines, should be employed. Lying on the side instead of on the back should be practiced. Patients afflicted with chronic diseases, on rising, should take a cold bath, dry the surface quickly with a coarse towel followed by friction with the hand. Great benefit may be derived by following these suggestions when the nature of the disease is not such as to forbid it. Exercise and rest necessarily alternate with each other. Exercise, so necessary to health, in many forms of disease greatly contributes to a recovery. It sends the sluggish blood coursing through the veins and arteries with increased force and rapidity, so that it reaches every part of the system, supplying it with nourishment. It increases the waste of old material and creates a demand for new, convalescing patients, or those suffering from chronic diseases, whenever the weather will permit.
should take exercise every day in the open air. This should be done with regularity. The amount of exercise must be regulated by the strength of the patient, never take so much as to produce fatigue. But, as the strength increases, the exercise may be increased proportionately. Some interesting employment, commensurate with the patient's strength, should be instituted, so that the mind may be agreeably occupied with the body. When unable to take active exercise, the invalid, properly protected by sufficient clothing, should ride in a carriage or boat, and each day a new route should be chosen, so that a change of scenery may be observed, thus arousing new trains of thought, which will be exhilarating and prove beneficial to him. Sexual Influences During the progress of disease or convalescence, entire continence must be observed. It is then necessary that all of the vital energies should be employed in effecting a recovery from disease, without having the additional tax imposed of overcoming the debilitating effects of sexual expenditure. This holds true with regard to all diseases, and especially those of the nervous system and genital urinary organs. Visiting the sick may be productive of good or evil results. Mental impressions made upon the sick exert a powerful influence upon the termination of disease. The chances of recovery are in proportion to the elevation or depression of spirits. Pleasant, cheerful associations animate the patient, inspire hope, arouse the vital energies, and aid in his recovery, while disagreeable and melancholy associations beget sadness and despondency, discourage the patient, depress the vital powers, enfeeble the body, and retard recovery, unless persons who visit the sick can carry with them joy, hope, mirth, and animation. They had better stay away. This applies equally in acute and chronic diseases. It does not matter what a visitor may think with regard to the patient's recovery. An unfavorable opinion should never find expression in the sick room. Life hangs upon a brittle thread, and often that frail support is hope. Cheer the sick by words of encouragement, and the hold on life will be strengthened, discouraged, by uttering such expressions as, How bad you look! Why, how you have failed since I saw you last! I would have another doctor, one who knows something, you can't live long if you don't get help, etc. And the tie which binds them to earth is snapped asunder, the visitor becomes a murderer. Let all persons be guided by this rule, never go into the sick room without carrying with you a few rays of sunshine. If the patient is very weak the visitor may injure him by staying too long. The length of the visit should be graduated according to the strength of the invalid. Never let the sufferer be wearied by too frequent or too lengthy visits nor by having too many visitors at once. Above all things, do not confine your visitations to Sunday. Many do this and give themselves credit for an extra amount of piety on account of it. When, if they would scrutinize their motives more carefully, they would see that it was but a contemptible resort to save time. The sick are often grossly neglected during the week only to be visited to death upon Sunday. The use of tobacco and opium. The recovery of the sick is often delayed, sometimes entirely prevented by the habitual use of tobacco or opium, in acute diseases, the appetite for tobacco is usually destroyed by the force of the disease, and its use island of necessity, discontinued, but in chronic ailments, the appetite remains unchanged, and the patient continues his indulgence greatly to the aggravation of the malady, the use of tobacco is a pernicious habit in whatever form it is introduced into the system, its active principle, nicotine, which is an energetic poison, exerts its specific effect on the nervous system, tending to stimulate it to an unnatural degree of activity, the final result of which is weakness, or even paralysis. The horse, under the action of whip and spur, may exhibit great spirit and rapid movements, 
but urge him beyond his strength with these agents, and you inflict a lasting injury, withhold the stimulants, and the drooping head and moping pace indicate the sad reaction which has taken place, this illustrates the evils of habitually exciting the nerves by the use of tobacco, opium, narcotic or other drugs, under their action, the tone of the system is greatly impaired, and it responds more feebly to the influence of curative agents, tobacco itself, when its use becomes habitual and excessive, gives rise to the most unpleasant and dangerous pathological conditions, oppressive torpor, weakness or loss of intellect, softening of the brain, paralysis, nervous stability, dyspepsia, functional derangement of the heart, and diseases of the liver and kidneys are not in common consequences of the excessive employment of this plant, a sense of faintness, nausea, giddiness, dryness of the throat, tremblings, feelings of fear, disquietude, and general nervous prostration must frequently warn persons addicted to this habit that they are sapping the very foundation of health, under the continued operation of a poison, inducing such symptoms as these, what chance is there for remedies to accomplish their specific action, with the system already thoroughly charged with an influence antagonistic to their own, and which is sure to neutralize their effect, what good can medicine do, Dr. King says, a patient under treatment should give up the use of tobacco, or his physician should assume no responsibility in his case, further than to do the best he can for him. In our own extensive experience in the treatment of chronic diseases, we have often found it necessary to resort to the same restriction. The opium habit, to which allusion has also been made, is open to the same objections, and must be abandoned by all who would seek recovery. Part IV. Diseases and their remedial treatment. Introduction. Knowledge which is conducive to self-preservation is of primary importance. That great educator, profound thinker, and vigorous writer, Herbert Spencer, has pertinently said that, as vigorous health and its accompanying high spirits, are larger elements of happiness than any other things whatever. The teaching how to maintain them is a teaching that yields to no other whatever, and therefore we assert that such a course of physiology as is needful for the comprehension of its general truths and their bearings on daily conduct is an all-essential part of a rational education, believing that the diffusion of knowledge for the prevention of disease is quite as noble a work as the alleviation of physical suffering by medical skill. We have devoted a large portion of this volume to the subjects of physiology and hygiene. These we have endeavored to present in as familiar a style as possible, that they may be understood by every reader. Freely as we have received light upon these subjects have we endeavored to reflect it again, in hopes that a popular presentation of these matters made plain and easy of comprehension to all people, may lead the masses into greater enjoyment of life the result of a better preservation of health. This we do in part as a public acknowledgement of our obligations to society, to whom every professional man is a debtor, he belongs to it, is a part of its common stock, and should give as well as receive advantages, return as well as accept benefits. We know of no better way to signify our appreciation of the public confidence and patronage, so generously accorded to us, than to offer this volume to the people at a price less than the actual cost for an edition of ordinary size. This we do as a token of the cordial reciprocation of their goodwill, in giving to the people wholesome advice, by which they may be enabled to ward off disease and thus preserve the health of multitudes. We believe we shall receive their hearty approval, as well as the approbation of our own conscience, both of which are certainly munificent rewards. We believe that good deeds are always rewarded, and that the physician who prevents sickness manifests a genuine and earnest devotion to the common interests of humanity. 
we have no respect for the motives of those medical men who would withhold that information from the people which will direct the masses how to take care of themselves, and thereby prevent much sickness and suffering, nor is the diffusion of such knowledge antagonistic to the best interests of the true and competent physician. The necessity for his invaluable services can no more be set aside by popularizing physiological, hygienic, and medical truths then we can dispense with those of the minister and lawyer by the inculcation of the principles of morality in our public schools. The common schools do not lessen the necessity for colleges or universities, but rather contribute to their prosperity. Nor are we so presumptuous as to anticipate that we could possibly make this volume so instructive as to render every man his own physician. No man can with advantage be his own lawyer, carpenter, tailor, and printer much less can he hope to artfully repair his own constitution when shattered by grave maladies, which not only impair the physical functions, but weaken and derange the mental faculties. What physician presumes to prescribe for himself, when suddenly prostrate by serious illness, he very sensibly submits to the treatment of another, because he realizes that sickness impairs his judgment, and morbid sensations mislead and unfit him for the exercise of his skill, if this is true of the physician. With how much greater force does it apply to the unprofessional? If a sick sea captain is unfit to stand at the helm and direct his ship, how utterly incompetent must the raw sailor be when similarly disqualified? Nor is the physician as competent to treat those near and dear to him, when they are suffering from dangerous illness, as another medical man not similarly situated, whose judgment is not liable to be misled by intense anxiety and affectionate sympathy. Notwithstanding all these facts, however, a knowledge on the part of the unprofessional, of something more than physiology and hygiene, and appertaining more closely to medicine proper, will many times prove valuable, in the first stage of many acute affections which, if unheeded, gradually assume a threatening aspect, endangering life and demanding the services of the most skilled physician to avert fatal results, the early administration of some common domestic remedy, such as a cathartic, or a diaphoretic herb, associated with a warm bath, a spirit vapor bath, or a hot foot bath, will very often obviate the necessity for calling a family physician, and frequently save days and weeks of sickness and suffering. So, likewise, are there numerous, acute diseases of a milder character which are easily and unmistakably recognized without the possession of great medical knowledge, and which readily yield to plain, simple, medical treatment which is within the ready reach of all who strive to acquaint themselves with the rudiments of medical science but in sudden and painful attacks of acute disease, life may be suddenly and unexpectedly jeopardized, and immediate relief proved necessary, while under these circumstances the prompt application of such domestic treatment as good common sense may dictate, guided by a knowledge of those first principles of medical learning which we shall hereafter endeavor to make plain, may result in speedy and happy relief. Yet at the same time there should be no delay in summoning a competent physician to the bedside of the sufferer. Then and not the least important, there are the various chronic or lingering diseases, from all of which few individuals indeed, who pass the meridian of life, entirely escape, in this class of ailments there is generally no immediate danger, and, therefore, time may be taken by the invalid for studying his disease and employing those remedies which are best sweet for its removal, or, if of a dangerous or complicated character, and, therefore, not so readily understood, he may consult either personally or by letter, some learned and well-known physician, who makes a specialty of the treatment of such cases, 
and whose large experience enables him to excel therein, in consideration, therefore, of the foregoing facts, we deem it most profitable for our readers that part fourth of this volume should be arranged in the following manner, the milder forms of complicated, acute diseases, which may be readily and unmistakably recognized, and successfully managed without professional aid, will receive that attention which is necessary to give the reader a correct idea of them, and their proper remedial treatment. We shall devote only such attention to the severe and hazardous forms of acute diseases as is necessary in order to consider their initial stage, with their proper treatment, not attempting to trace their numerous complications, or portray the many pathological conditions which are liable to be developed, for, even by devoting much space to the latter, we could not expect to qualify our unprofessional readers for successfully treating such obscure and dangerous conditions. We shall devote the largest amount of space to a careful and thorough consideration of those chronic diseases, which, by a little study, may be readily recognized and understood by the masses, and for the cure of which we shall suggest such hygienic treatment and domestic remedies as may be safely employed by all who are in quest of relief, in the more dangerous, obscure, or complicated forms of chronic diseases the correct diagnosis and successful treatment of which tax all the skill possessed by the experienced specialist. The invalid will not be misled into the dangerous policy of relying upon his own judgment and treatment, but will be counseled not to postpone until too late. The employment of a skillful physician, the apportionment of space which is made in considering the various diseases and their different stages, as well as the course which the people are advised to pursue under the different circumstances of affliction is not always in accordance with the plans and recommendations which have been made by others who have written works on domestic medicine. Most of these authors have attempted, by lengthy disquisitions, to teach their readers how to treat themselves without the services of a physician, even in the most hazardous forms of disease, in such dangerous maladies as typhoid, typhus, yellow, and scarlet fevers, typhoid pneumonia, and many others, in which life is imminently imperiled. Such instruction and advice is decidedly reprehensible, as it may lead to the most serious consequences. We are confident, therefore, that the manner of disposing of the different subjects which are discussed in the succeeding chapters, and the course of action which is advised, will commend themselves to our readers as being such as are calculated to promote and subserve their best interests. Medical Diagnosis Skill in the art of healing is indicated in three ways. 1. By ascertaining the symptoms. Seat and nature of the disease, which is termed diagnosis, too, by foretelling the probable termination, which is termed prognosis, three, by the employment of efficacious and appropriate remedies, which is called treatment, of these three requisites to a prosperous issue, nothing so distinguishes the expert and accomplished physician from the mere pretender as his ready ability to interpret correctly, the location, extent, and character of an affection from its symptoms, by medical diagnosis, then, is understood the discrimination between diseases by certain symptoms which are distinguishing signs. Every malady is accompanied by its characteristic indications, some of which are diagnostic, i.e. they particularize the affection and distinguish it from all others. Medical diagnosis is both a science and an art, a science when the causes and symptoms of a disease are understood, and an art when this knowledge can be applied to determine its location and exact nature. Science presents the general principles of practice, art detects among the characteristic symptoms the differential signs, and applies the remedy. 
D.A. Costa aptly remarks, no one aspiring to become a skillful observer can trust exclusively to the light reflected from the writings of others, he must carry the torch in his own hands, and himself look into every recess, the critical investigation of symptoms, with the view of ascertaining their signs, is essential to successful practice, without closely observing them, we cannot accurately trace out the diagnosis, and a failure to detect the right disease is apt to be followed by the use of wrong medicines. General diagnosis considers the surroundings of the patient as well as the actual manifestations of the disease. It takes into account the diathesis, i.e. the predisposition to certain diseases in consequence of peculiarities of constitution. We recognize constitutional tendencies, which may be indicated by the contour of the body, its growth, stature, and temperament. Since all these facts greatly modify the treatment, likewise the sex, age, climate, habits, occupation, previous diseases, as well as the present condition, must be taken into account. Auscultation, as practiced in detecting disease, consists in listening to the sounds which can be heard in the chest. Percussion consists in striking upon a part with the view of appreciating the sound which results. The part may be struck directly with the tips of the fingers but more generally one or more fingers of the other hand are interposed between the points of the fingers and the part to be percussed, that they, instead of the naked chest, may receive the blow, or, instead of the fingers, a flat piece of bone or ivory, called a pleximeter, is placed upon the chest to receive the blow. Latterly, improved instruments greatly assist the practitioner of medicine in perfecting this art. The microscope assists the eye and helps to reveal the appearance and character of the excretions. Detecting morbid degenerations, chemistry discloses the composition of the urine, which also indicates the morbid alterations occurring in the system. By percussion we can determine the condition of an internal organ. From the sound given when the external surface is percussed, the ear, with the aid of the stethoscope, detects the strange murmurs of respiration, the fainter, more unnatural pulsations of life and the obscure workings of disease, with the spirometer we determine the breathing capacity of the lungs, and thus ascertain the extent of the inroads made by disease, the dynamometer records the lifting ability of the patient, the thermometer indicates the morbid variation in the bodily temperature, various instruments inform us of the structural changes causing alterations in the specific gravity of fluids, e.g. the urinometer indicates those occurring in the urine, and thus, As the facilities for correct diagnosis increase, the art of distinguishing and classifying diseases becomes more perfect, and their treatment more certain. While physiology treats of all the natural functions, pathology treats of lesions and altered conditions. By the term symptoms we mean the evidence of some morbid effect or change occurring in the human body, and it requires close observation and well-instructed experience to convert these symptoms into diagnostic signs. Suppose all probabilities, as we commonly designate the invaluable signal department hangs out his warning tokens all along our lake borders and ocean coasts, our sailors behold the fluttering symbols indicating an approaching storm, but if no one understood their meaning, a fearful disaster might follow, but if these signals are understood, a safe harbor is sought and the mariner is protected, so disease may hang out all her signals of distress, in order that they may be seen, but unless correctly interpreted and a remedial harbor is sought. These symptoms are of little practical value. Undoubtedly the reason why so many symptom doctors blunder is because they prescribe according to the apparent symptoms, without any real reference to the nature of the affection. They fail to discover how far a symptom points out the seat, and also the progress of a disease. 
they do not distinguish the relative importance of the different symptoms. The practical purpose of all science is to skillfully apply knowledge to salutary and profitable uses. The patient himself may carefully note the indications, but it is only the expert physician who can tell the import of each symptom. Symptoms are within everyone's observation, but only the physician knows the nature and value of signs. We have read an anecdote of Galen, who was a distinguished physician in his day, which illustrates the distinction between sign and symptom. Once, when dangerously ill, he overheard two of his friends in attendance upon him recount his symptoms, such as, redness of the face, a dejected, haggard, and inflamed appearance, etc. He cried out to them to adopt every necessary measure forthwith, as he was threatened with delirium. The two friends saw the symptoms well enough, but it was only Galen himself, though the patient, who was able to deduce the sign of delirium that island he alone was able to translate those symptoms into signs, to determine the value of symptoms, as signs of disease, requires close observation, interpretation of symptoms, we shall refer to a few symptoms which any unprofessional reader may readily observe and understand, position of patient, when a patient is disposed to lie upon his back continually during the progress of an acute disease, it is a sign of muscular debility, if he manifests no desire to change his position, or cannot do so, and becomes tremulous at the least effort, it indicates general prostration, when this position is assumed, during the progress of continued fever, and is accompanied by involuntary twitching of the muscles, picking of the bedclothes, etc. Then danger is imminent and the patient is sinking. Fever, resulting from local inflammation, does not produce muscular prostration, and the patient seldom or never assumes the supine position. If this inflammation is in the extremities, those parts are elevated, in order to lessen the pressure of the blood, which a dependent position increases. For example, let us change the scene and introduce a patient with head and shoulders elevated, who prefers to sit up, and who places his hands behind him and leans back, or leans forward resting his arms and head upon a chair, the next week he is worse, and no longer tries to lie in bed, but sits up all the time, note the anxious expression of countenance, the difficult or hurried breathing, the dry and hacking cough, and observe that the least exertion increases the difficulty of respiration and causes palpitation of the heart, these plain symptoms signify thoracic effusion, the collection of water about the lungs, the countenance displays diagnostic symptoms of disease, in simple, acute fevers, the eyes and face are red and the respiration is hurried, but in acute, sympathetic fever, these signs are wanting, we cannot forget the pale, sharp, contracted, and pinched features of those patients whose nostrils contract and expand alternately with the acts of respiration, how hard it was for them to breathe, the contraction and expansion of the nostrils indicate active congestion of the lungs. As a general rule, chronic inflammation of the stomach, duodenum, liver, and adjacent organs, imparts a gloomy expression to the countenance. At the same time the eye is dull, the skin dusky or yellow, and the motions are slow. But in lung diseases, the spirits are buoyant, the skin is fair, and the cheeks flushed with fever and distinctly circumscribed with white. For delicacy and contrast almost exceed the hues of health and beauty. Note, 2. The pearly luster and sparkling light of the eye, the quivering motion of the lips and chin, all signs of pulmonary disease. The story of sexual abuse is plainly told by the downcast countenance, the inability to look a person fairly in the face, the peculiar lifting of the upper lip and the furtive glance of the eye. The state of the mind and of the nervous system corroborates this evidence. 
for there seems to be a desire to escape from conversation and to elude society. The mind seems engrossed and abstracted. The individual appears absorbed in a constant meditation. He is forgetful and loses nearly all interest in the ordinary affairs of life. The whole appearance of a patient, suffering from spermatoria, is perfectly understood by the experienced physician. For the facial expressions, state of mind, and movements of the body, all unconsciously betray, and unitedly proclaim his condition. Tongue. Much may be learned from the appearance, color, and form of the tongue, and the manner of its protrusion. If pale, moist, and coated white, it indicates a mild, febrile condition of the system. If coated in the center, and the sides look raw, it indicates gastric irritation. If red and raw, or dry and cracked, it is a sign of inflammation of the mucous membrane of the stomach. If the inflammation is in the large intestine, the tip of the tongue presents a deep red color, while the middle is loaded with a dark brown coating. When the tongue is elongated and plant, quickly protruded and withdrawn, it indicates irritation of the nerve centers, as well as of the stomach and bowels. If tremulous, it denotes congestion and lack of functional ability. This may be observed in congestive fevers. Pulse. Usually the pulse beats four times during one respiration, but both in health and disease its frequency may be accelerated or retarded. In adults, there are from 65 to 75 beats in a minute, and yet in a few instances we have found, in health, only 40 pulsations per minute, but when the heart beats from 120 to 140 times a minute, there is reason to apprehend danger, and the case should receive the careful attention of a physician. Irregularity of the pulse may be caused by disease of the brain, heart, stomach, or liver, by the disordered condition of the nervous system, by lack of muscular nutrition, as in gout, rheumatism, or convulsions, by deficiency of the heart's effective power, when the pulse wave does not reach the wrist, or when it intermits and then becomes more rapid in consequence of septic changes of the blood, as in diphtheria, erysipelas, and eruptive fevers, pain. The import of pain depends on its seat, intensity, nature, and duration. An acute, intense pain usually indicates inflammation of a nerve as well as the adjacent parts. Sharp, shooting, lancing adding pains occur in inflammation of the serous tissues, as in pleurisy. A smarting, stinging pain attends inflammation of the mucous membrane. Acute pain is generally remitting and not fixed to one spot.